Welcome to lesson number seven, or week number seven, in our fall and winter series about uh, uh, the book of Acts, uh, which was we, we're, we've been calling the witness to the world, or witnesses to the world. Uh, today in week seven, we are going to be talking about the, uh, the origination of deacons within the body of Christ. Uh, we're also going to be talking about, especially about one of those, the first one, uh, Stephen, uh, not only but of, about his ministry, but also ultimately about him being the first of the martyrs of the Christian church. So, uh, that being said, let me go ahead and open with prayer and we'll get started. Gracious Father, we are indeed grateful for this beautiful, beautiful fall afternoon. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, we have been blessed here with, with weather that's been uh, both mild in the morning times and, and warm in the afternoons. Uh, and, and uh, no severe weather in, in our area, so we thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, we also give you thanks, Lord, for uh, again for us having the opportunity to come and to uh, to to spend a few minutes doing this lesson, Sunday school lesson, uh, Father, for for those who look forward to it, uh, and perhaps for some who who may not have seen it before, but who might even turn in, uh, tune in this uh, this week. Uh, moved by your spirit to do so. And we, we just pray, Father, that that is the case. Uh, it's difficult uh, when, we, when you do lessons like this or when you do uh, whatever it is that you have to do to communicate to the, to the body uh, that you not know what, uh, whether uh, people are watching or not watching or, or whether it's having any effect or not having any effect. But, Lord, we leave that to you. And we just pray that, uh, uh, as, that we are, uh, are able and capable of, of uh, sending forth your word. And we'll do that in a faithful way. And we, we live, leave the rest to you. Uh, Father, we ask, too, that you would be with us during this time, that you would give us uh, the words to say, that uh, uh, we depend upon the, your truth. Uh, we center our message around your truth, Father, and we know that uh, in doing that, if we are faithful to your truth, that we cannot go wrong in that regard. So we ask that you would be with us today. Bless us and keep us in doing your work uh, always and, and help us to be uh, continually faithful to what you have called us to do in Christ Jesus in whose name we do pray. Amen. All right. Uh, chronologically, we're in about A.D. 35, maybe in January, February, March time frame. Uh, we are uh, at that period of time where the church has enjoyed immense success in Jerusalem. Uh, and are, are now considering some of the ramifications of that success. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, overwhelmed by success. It's uh, uh, probably a, a, uh, a condition, if you will, that, that every church would like to experience to be overwhelmed by success. But in the, in the early church there in Jerusalem, it certainly was the case. Uh, there were... Uh, thousands of believers in the Jerusalem and surrounding area there, tens of thousands actually, and so the church was enjoying great success, but in that success they were also experiencing some, some growing or expansion problems. One of the ones that, that, that brought uh, the, the need for additional resources to help uh, facilitate all of that success was an experience they were having with what's called uh, I, in, the, in the word, it, the, the, um, 
uh, let's see, what was the word? Oh, gogusmos. Gogusmos, uh, a Hebrew word which means whisperings. So there, there was a great deal of whispering going on in the, in the young church there in Jerusalem. Uh, and certainly it begs the question, well, what were they whispering about? Well, they were whispering about the fact that there were so many new converts to, to the church and to Christianity. Uh, and also there were, uh, there, there were a variety, if you will, of, of uh, uh, peoples that were, come, that were already in Jerusalem as well as new converts that were coming into Jerusalem uh, and the families of some that were already there that were migrating back or immigrating back into Jerusalem for a variety of reasons. So uh, all of that mix of people was causing, uh, when mixed to all of those diverse cultures, if you will, when coming into Jerusalem and mixing with the, the Hebrews that were there and had been there for, for generations, uh, were causing some growing problems. And there were, the, it, it sent centralized, I guess it was centralized around the, uh, the Hebraic, or Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem that were native to that area and what were called the Hellenistic Jews that were coming from other parts of the world, more specifically in Greece and Rome and, and so forth. Uh, and the, the presence of those people there and there was a large segment of that population that was going to be dependent upon the church in Jerusalem for support, for nurturing and, and, and uh, resources, uh, living resources and so forth. One of the things that, that you probably already know is, is that uh, many Jews think it, it's, an, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, the law teaches them that they, if in fact they are going to be uh, resurrected on resurrection day, that they must be in Jerusalem to do so. And even those that are, uh, are, or die somewhere that's not close to Jerusalem or, or in another country, one of the things that they try to do is have some soil from Jerusalem uh, sent to that location where the person is or, is or has died and have that dirt sprinkled into the grave there so that they can at least say they, they died on Jewish soil. And so there were, that was a, a, an issue. It was always uh, important for people who died to die either in Jerusalem or to have some dirt from Jerusalem to be made a part of their, uh, their grave site so, they can, so that they can say they died on Jerusalem soil or, or in Israeli soil, if you, uh, if you will. One of the things that, that uh, I, I thought was an interesting uh, thing I was reading this week is it said if, you, if in fact you were one of those that were without resources and couldn't get someone to send you some soil from, from Egypt, or not from Egypt, from, but from Israel, uh, if you died in a foreign country, is that on resurrection day, uh, somehow you were going to have to burrow beneath the soil, beneath the surface of the soil, all the way back to Jerusalem in order to be resurrected from the grave there. Sounded sort of ludicrous and anybody would think that they were going to be doing that, but at the same time, that was a part of their belief structure. And this is one of the reasons it was causing some problems there is because there were many of the, many of the widows whose husbands had died elsewhere in other countries were coming back to Jerusalem either to bury them or perhaps to, uh, to seek... Uh, a home or a place to stay or to in the remaining part of their life or perhaps even bringing their, their husbands there, back there and after they brought their husbands back they stayed. And so those, all of those people were coming in and they were demanding resources or requiring resources in order to remain viable there uh, in Israel. And so many of the Hebraic 
Hebraic uh, uh, widows that were there uh, began to get jealous of these Hellenistic widows who were coming in. And so that's the reason the whispering started. Now, uh, good for the, uh, uh, certainly good for the, the apostles who were there in that uh, it, it wasn't one of those things that they thought could, they could let fester for very long. And so they decided that uh, they needed to do something very quickly about that rather than letting it, it grow into a real problem they called a church-wide congregational meeting so all of the all of the churches all of the, the whether it was home churches or whether there were churches affiliated with synagogues or whatever all in that area they, there was a large congregational meeting that was held uh, they talked about this issue and they decided that what they needed to do were to appoint some men to be become deacons uh, in the church and to, to begin to handle some of these logistical problems. Now, one of the things that uh, they did in, in doing this is that uh, obviously they had a list. I don't think they went through a nominating committee or anything, but the apostles uh, decided that they would not uh, cast lots, uh, that they would just identify by the movement of the Spirit a number of men to be considered as deacons in the church, and they would go ahead and uh, recognize those people or to elect those people or to commission those people as deacons in the new church. Now, the first name on the list was, in fact, Stephen. Stephen was, was very well known in the, in the Jerusalem church. Uh, he is one of those dependable people, one of those people in the church that, that perhaps not, not getting a lot of attention, but everybody knows who he is and everybody knows what he does. He maintains a low profile, but he gets a lot done and he has the power of the Spirit with him on a continual basis. And so they chose seven deacons, uh, the, the first one being Stephen, the second one being Philip, and we'll talk about Philip next week. In Acts 6, 8 through 10, I'm going to, I'm going to go, go ahead and go back to uh, the sixth chapter here. And let me, let me just get us caught up on the reading so that we can then get into Stephen's ministry. Starting with the first verse, chapter 6. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews about the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, daily distribution of food and, and other resources that they needed. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The, so the apostle says, You know, we've got way too much to do uh, than to wait on people uh, are like serving food or are doing those kind of tasks. There are plenty of people who can do those tasks and leave us to, to the preaching and healing and so forth. Third verse says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, this business of distribution of, of uh, things that the needy needed, and especially to the widows. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they set these before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands upon them, and then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. It's interesting that they mention the fact that, that Christianity was growing among the priesthood, among the Levites there in Jerusalem. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose a, uh, 
some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, who were Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So here, the, so the process that took place there to, uh, to get to the point of having deacons and then of course begin to, uh, to talk about exactly the, uh, that first one which was chosen which was Stephen and they, they talk about Stephen not in the, fight, in the way in which he was dealing with the widows and, the, and for the very reason they were chosen the distribution of resources to those that were in need but his, his ministry. So, if, so being a deacon, obviously, for some, was much more than, than just uh, serving meals and, and taking care of widows. It turned out that, that, that Stephen was a very uh, articulate and uh, uh, successful debater among the Jews. And you will see, we'll see here in those, those verses uh, there in 8, 9, and 10 where they're talking about who, the, who are the people were that Stephen was engaging in debates. These are people who came from, uh, from Athens and from other parts of uh, that area where there were many philosophers and, and people who were uh, always debating in the public square and so forth. But it, it turned out that Stephen was an exceptionally good debater. And so he was filled with power. Uh, which, which is not, again, it wasn't something that you expected to hear about the deacons because they were, they were in fact, supposed to be serving other people, not preaching in the streets. But in, in Stephen's case, and certainly in Philip's case, next week we'll talk about him, they were evangelists primarily, and maybe deacons secondarily, but they were also filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and were doing things much like the apostles were doing. They were healing, they were preaching, and they were doing other things uh, almost uh, exactly like what the apostles were doing. As a matter of fact, they were sort of associates, apostles. They were very effective in what they were doing, and of course, and they were debating the Jews, uh, contending uh, for the identity of Christ as the Messiah. In the 11th verse, through the 7th, 7th uh, verse, it says, because they were so effective, the Sadducees, and I'm sure other people were involved too, were trying to convince people, they were trying to recruit, recruit people, especially some within the church itself. Those people who knew Stephen, trying to get them to say that Stephen was in fact a blasphemer. And that because they couldn't beat him in, the, you know, in, a, in an open debate, uh, he was so good that he, they were not having any success in countering his arguments for Christ as the Messiah. And so they decided to stir up people by use of uh, accusations of him blaspheming uh, the, the, the temple and blaspheming the law and so forth. Uh, starting with the 11th verse, and let me read through the, the first uh, verse in chapter 7. And it says, they, and, and they, being the Sadducees, stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change, change the customs which Moses delivered to us. 
and all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. And then the high priest said, Are these things so? And so what they, they were successful in rounding up some thugs and some, some people who were willing to uh, accuse Stephen of saying things against not only the temple but also the, the law and so forth. And so uh, they had brought him before the, the Sanhedrin. They were going to uh, try him just as they had tried uh, Peter and John uh, and uh, so forth. But Stephen, beginning with the, in the 7th chapter there, uh, Stephen decided that he was in answering their questions, starting with the second verse, and it goes on for, for quite a long time, is that Stephen, in his defense, he began to, to do exactly what Peter and John had done in their sermons, and that was, rather than being uh, uh, sort of reactive to what people were saying, that he was much more preactive, uh, pre proactive, and that he was going to hit first, if you will, and he began to give them a, a very long but yet very accurate history lesson about the Jewish people and its relationship with God. Starting with, with his seventh chapter in the second verse, and he said, uh, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So starting there in the second verse, he begins to then recite for them the, the historic relationship between God and all of, the, all of the, uh, the, the saints of old, if you will, the father of, of uh, 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 his people. Abraham, and then he goes through all of the rest, all the way up until Jesus himself, and he talks about how through all of that, through from the very beginning until Christ himself was, was rejected and crucified, resurrected, and exalted, as that he, he talked about all of that, and showed that the relationship from the Jewish perspective was always a flawed and adulterous relationship. They had never been faithful to any of the covenants that God had established with his people. And so it was a, it was a, 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 a very damning sermon that he preached there to uh, those people who were trying him there. And one of the things that they did, of course, was that uh, they wanted to attack the very premises of what Peter, I mean, what, what Stephen was saying. He was, of course, Stephen was saying that Christ was the Jewish Messiah and that since, the, uh, since Christ was the Messiah and that he was in fact rejected, crucified, resurrected, and exalted, the law itself had been superseded, if you will, and the law of Moses was inoperative. They had a, that, that Christ had fulfilled the law and so forth the law didn't, no longer applied. It was faith in Christ that in fact was what was operable and also that temple worship was in fact dispensable that God himself resided within each person, that our bodies, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so those were the premises of his sermon. And of course, when the Sanhedrin arrested him and charged him, they had charged him against those three premises. And of course, the charges that they accused him of was being blaspheming against Moses, threatening the temple itself, and challenging the Torah. And so Stephen then begins in this long history lesson, uh, starting in, in verse 2 of the 7th chapter, and it goes all the way over to uh, the last part of uh, 751, I believe it is. Let's see. Yeah. It gets over in chapter 7, 
in the 51st verse. And he brings this long accusation-filled sermon uh, to a conclusion by saying in verse 51, and it's a very passionate and strong, strongly worded conclusion to his sermon. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, come in, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And of course in verse 54, his conclusion was, as, or, or in, in, the, in the conclusion in this 51 through 53, then of course the reaction to that, when he called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised and that they have, they've always been adulterous and, and have been persecuting uh, the church, if you will, or those that were faithful uh, who, or who had faith. Verse 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That, that's, that's sort of a, uh, a funny verse there because I'm sure you can, you can sort of imagine what that was like. And this is, this is not some sort of a, a metaphorical thing. This is an actual thing that they did back then when they got angry. Uh, you know, you, you may have seen it. You know, people doing it before, is talking about the gnashing of teeth. Uh, and, and that it truly is what they did is they clicked their teeth together very aggressively and as loud as they could uh, to demonstrate their anger or their sense of anger and the emotion of their anger. And they literally gnashed their teeth together and made this gnashing or clacking sound uh, with their mouth. And that, of course, is they were so angry here at what he had just said as that they were, in fact, uh, it says cut to their heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And, of course, again, you, can, you again can visualize what was going on here. They're, they're clacking their teeth together. They're gnashing their teeth. Their eyes were probably bulging out, and, and their faces were red as, they, and as their anger rose up in them. And then when he said, he talked about the, the vision that he was seeing is that they cloud, cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, and just rushed him where he was standing. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. It was not lawful for, for someone to be stoned inside the city limits. They had to take them out into outside the city limits. Uh, the, the stoning process, if you will, or the, the stoning event took place in a depression outside the city. It was a depression that was created specifically for stoning people. Uh, it was sort of a bowl-shaped thing where in a lower part of the ground and there was sort of a higher ground all around this, this uh, um, hole that was, had been dug and, and certainly had, I'm sure was probably been used before for other people. Uh, but Stephen was the first of the Christian uh, faith to be martyred in this, in this way. And so what they did, they took him out into the, uh, where this, this uh, place was, this place of stoning. 
uh, they threw him down the embankment down into uh, the lower part of where uh, he was to, to be. Uh, it, was not, it would not have been easy for him to, to have gotten out of there. He would have had to climb up rather steep slopes. Uh, and of course, around the top, around the, the little dam around this, this bowl, of course, uh, were many uh, large and small and all kinds and sizes of rocks and boulders and, and so forth that, they, that those people who were going to participate in the stoning could use. And so they cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And of course, Stephen uh, was very calm uh, and, and uh, very collected while he was doing while they were doing this. And as he was calling on God, he was praying all the time they were throwing these stones down. Uh, in verse 59 it says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with his sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, now Stephen, certainly these words are very familiar and don't charge them as very same, same, not same sentence per se, but it was the very same thing that Christ had said when they crucified him, uh, is, is not to let this sin uh, be held against them. And so Stephen had said this when they were stoning him to death, uh, and after he had said this, he did just as Christ had done uh, when he said that uh, not to charge the sins of those who crucified him against them, and he then gave up the ghost, and that's exactly what Stephen did here. Now, this is... Uh, of course, he, the vision was important. He had that vision of seeing Christ in, in heaven. And I would imagine, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, you've, you've probably heard, and, and many times people have said, and, I, and I'm sure that everyone probably who's listening to, to this lesson today probably has set at the side of, of people who are in the dying process. Uh, and there's a, it is a, very seldom is it ever a... Um, A process that does not have in it some some very high emotional kinds of, of events that take place in it. Uh, one of the things that that uh, uh, I remember very vividly, and in, in, in several of the uh, of the occasions that I've had to be at the side of, of someone who's dying, is of course this what, what I call delusional reality, and other people have other names for it. But it's, it's when, when someone is, you know, it's, it's akin to seeing things of your past life pass in front of you. I can, certainly can remember my father as he laid uh, dying uh, in the hospital. And as he was laying there, he was, he was awake and he was looking at the wall in this hospital room. And he saw just, it was almost a widescreen movie that was taking place all around the room. As he talked about, as he looked from one side of the room all the way around the other side of the room. And looking at all these events in his life that was taking taking place and set talking about each one of them, about the time that he did this with his grandfather and about this happening and another person that was, uh, you know, that was coming to his mind. So all of these things are in a way delusional, but at the same time, for the person who's experiencing them, they're absolutely real. And so as, as uh, and that's the kind of thing that, that you, you sort of get a, a feeling for as you look and see or, or, or as you read the, the word and you see what was happening with, with uh, uh, 
uh, Stephen there, as he was in the, the process of being stoned to death, uh, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. I'm sure for Stephen that was, that was not a delusion, that was an actual thing that happened for him. Uh, uh, for those other kinds of experiences that people who are in the midst of dying have, uh, I, I certainly don't know. I, I, I would, I would, the only reason I say this was not a delusion is because it's in God's Word and it's the truth. And so Luke repeated that or included that because it's something that, that was a very important thing for us to know and that, that we do have that opportunity. Uh, just as Stephen did, as we are in those moments uh, prior to our death, that God will perhaps reveal things to us, uh, just as he did to Stephen's, and just as he did to other people, and we'll read about uh, in other places in the scripture, as they, they see things uh, that are not delusional, they're, they're re reality of things that are taking place in heaven, uh, in order to, to ease for us that transition from where we are until where we're going to be. So we had this vision of heaven, and, of course, while he was having this vision, he was reciting or sort of re reflecting on that vision to the people who were up standing above him throwing down stones. And, of course, the more he talked about that, the bigger stones they were looking for to try and stone him to death with. And that, of course, they were successful in doing that. Now, after Stephen was stoned, uh, there was a... Uh, an introduction that takes place. This was an opportunity now for Luke to introduce someone, of course, who's going to play in a very important part uh, in uh, the, the beginning of the church and the expansion of the church throughout the, the Mideast. Uh, the, the person he's talking about here, we've, we've heard the name before, is Saul of Tarsus. In Acts, the eighth chapter, in the first four verses, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death meaning that Saul had no problem with them stoning Stephen to death. Saul was there. Uh, he was holding the coats of those people who were throwing rocks and stones. He was trying to be as facilitatory as he possibly could because he was, in much he was in agreement, total agreement with what they were doing because Stephen represented to him a destruction of the faith as he knew it. The blaspheming against Moses, threatening the temple, and challenging the Torah. And those are all things that were very much a part of, of uh, Saul's life. And so he was, uh, he was willing to do and voluntarily did uh, anything he possibly could to facilitate the stamping out of uh, that early church. So now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. This is following Stephen's stoning. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And you'll remember that the, the uh, Sanhedrin had struck a sort of a deal uh, gamma, with Gamaliel uh, that they would let the apostles alone because of the work that they were doing and the power which they manifested in the doing of that work. And so they had said, you know, as, as Gamaliel had said to them, you know, leave them alone. If they, are, if they are of God, there's nothing you can do. And if they're not of God, it will ultimately take care of itself. They will be found out, and of course they will disappear as a result. Up in the second verse of the eighth chapter, he says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prisons. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And so we have the introduction of Saul, who was a, a, a very zealous 
a Pharisee, a very uh, a member of the Pharisees. As he said in, later on in Corinthians, he talked about, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. And so Saul was very much in favor of the persecution of the church. He was a self-appointed architect slash enforcer of that oppressive movement. And of course, he was also instrumental in getting the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin all on the same sheet of music in some sort of an oppositional alliance to the church. And because of that oppositional alliance, the, the Christians began to, uh, to, to be scattered throughout the region. A new diaspora, if you will, uh, likened to getting out of town. Uh, it was got too hot for them there in Jerusalem, so they went to places where it was a lot more safe for them. But Paul, of course, was not going to, to uh, uh, let that slow him down uh, because we will be talking about him later on where he decided that Jerusalem wasn't the only place that he could hunt down uh, these new Christians and persecute them. So we'll talk about that next week. But this, if there's a one conclusion that you can draw from uh, what happened with Stephen is that, again, once again, the nation of Israel had national rejection of Jesus Christ. They had once again through, uh, had, had, had decided uh, that the, uh, the old ways were better than the new ways, that Jesus was not the Messiah, and the things that he had come to, to pronounce in terms of who he was and why he came, they decided was not going to be acceptable because it threatened them and what they had always believed and so forth. And so once again, they saw to it that there was a national rejection of Jesus and of course they were willing to go to, uh, to all links or any links in order to stamp out this new church. Now look, I, next week we will be talking about Philip and Philip's ministry uh, and again talking about another deacon uh, and then after that we will go to start talking about Saul himself. Now, once we get to the introduction of Saul and the beginning of his ministry, it sort of switches now from Peter being the, the leading identity within uh, the first half of Acts. Uh, now Paul will be the leading identity in the second half of Acts. And you will remember when we broke that out at the beginning, uh, it was uh, 14, about 14 and a half years when they were in Jerusalem or centered in Jerusalem, and the last 14 and a half years were, were outside of Jerusalem. So... Next week, again, talking about the ministry of the deacon Philip. Let me close with prayer. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for your word of truth. Uh, Father, we look at, at, at uh, uh, Stephen, uh, and we, we think about uh, how quickly uh, his flame was extinguished, but how brightly it burned in the very short time in which he was uh, not only a deacon, but also an evangelist and a great debater and a great uh, uh, testimony for the love and, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, he was martyred, uh, but I'm sure that, that uh, uh, in his martyrdom is that uh, the church saw in him uh, what they were to not only to expect in the future, but the links to which the opposition would try to stamp them out. And, and uh, knowing that that's, that's happened then, it, it happens now. And so we pray always, Father, for your, uh, for your strength uh, to keep us strong in the faith, uh, for the power of your spirit to reside within us so that we can always remain true uh, to the testimony that we have once uh, established. And that is the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and how it's through that sacrifice that we have any, any way at all 
uh, to have eternal life and to be reconciled to you. So, Father, we, we thank you for that. We glorify uh, in your faithfulness to us. And we just pray, Lord, that you will uh, keep us and use us in whatever way you see fit to do things which will be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.